All right, we're here with Julie Ivensteiner, probably the most honest critic of anything we have going on in soccer in Minnesota. Julie, I met you, I think, at a couple of Gopher soccer games, but yep. you are probably more widely known for your expertise in rehab and your athletic training business. Um, talk a little bit about kind of your soccer career and how you got into the work you're doing now. Yeah, for sure. I think we also have the podcast with the craziest last names too, by the way. So. <laughs> Long, longest, weirdest. Yeah, and most difficult to spell and say. Um, I've been signer and Pavratsky would be a real hell of a branding exercise. Yeah, Not, yeah, exactly. People right? would immediately jump off. No one would stick around. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so journey. Um, yeah, so I go for alum. Uh, played there, uh, majored in kinesiology, redshirted my, my freshman year there, uh, ended up doing my master's degree my fifth year. Then um, right after that, I, I originally went into, um, into college thinking physical therapy was what I was going to do, um, and I got some of my prereqs done, but then I had the opportunity to coach right after that, and I don't know, staying around soccer is a heck of a lot more fun than uh, – then jumping back and you know jumping into a grad program, so I ended up moving to Iowa, coached down at Iowa State for two years as an assistant, um, and then ended up coming back, finished my prereqs uh, for PT school, um, got involved with actually when I was with the Gophers, I got involved with coaching. Um, Ian Barker, who's now in charge of the United Soccer Coaches Association, was the director of coaching for NYSA. Um, and he kind of took me under my or under his wing um, and got me involved in things. And at the time, I didn't re- now I realize it for sure. But at the time, I didn't realize how lucky I was to just happen to be to to be in an environment where I had Ian as a mentor, um, uh, just because he's, he's a tremendous person. And then just the knowledge um, and and everything I learned about coaching um, is is big in part to him um so he kind of when I when I was a a upperclassman at the Gophers got involved with coaching um at the club level ODP clinics whatever um ended up uh, started my coaching licenses and stuff went down to Iowa coached there for two years came back continued to coach uh some club soccer up here was with Ian actually he was with McAllister on the men's program um so I he he asked me to be on staff with him over there uh, with the men, and I ended up helping with the men and the women over there, which was an interesting experience. Um, it was a great experience. Um, and then I stayed there for about seven or eight years, um, moved, uh, and then went to PT school, uh, got my doctorate in PT school from the University of Minnesota. I always tell people I'm a triple gopher, so, which is why I <laughs> Undergrad, always... Undergrad, grad degree, yeah. PhD... Just all the way through. Yep. Yeah. So I always get badgers <laughs> a really hard time around here. Um, but anyway, I went to went to work uh, after PT school. Went to work with a for a private orthopedic group, um, and then uh, was there not, not even a year and decided, um, you know, I really want to specialize in sport. Really want to specialize in ACLs. Um, ended up quitting that job, just going off on my own, supplemented my income coaching, um, and then grew a business. And uh, right now, the, for the podcast, we're sitting in, um, in a facility that I've been in since uh, May 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, have four employees that work, or three, under, three employees that work under me, soon to be four. Um, and, and we do two things, uh, rehab of, of mainly ACL injuries. That's about 85% of my, 
my clientele and then um, the other or 85% of my injuries that I rehab and then the other half is uh, strength and conditioning for either athletes that have never been injured or athletes coming back from injury so just getting them ready for their sport and hopefully keeping them healthy and then in my free time <laughs> that's left over uh, I help out at St. Thomas with the women's program yeah. now there and I've been there for about uh, six or seven years as well. I yeah. always tell people I live in a time warp because I never know. <laughs> <laughs> I never know what day of the week it is. Ever. Well, by the time, yeah, by the time you're running your own small business and you have a side gig, then it's like uh, yeah. you're reaching a level of just like right. scheduling insanity right. that cannot be matched. I always tell people I feel like the plate spinning lady in the circus <laughs> when you used to see like the lady spinning all the plates. Yeah. So, anyways, keeps me on my it keeps me on my toes. So and, it's good. And I think the first time we probably talked at length was when I interviewed you for um, the piece we did on Emily Peterson's recovery from yeah. her ACL injury. Yep. And I think the probably the most interesting thing for me talking to you about that is just for you know I'm. I don't have a lot of specialized, you know, expertise in sports. I mean, like, like a lot of people played some level of sports, multiple different sports, and you maybe read about sports, but like we, we joked before we started recording, like regular fans, even sports fans or even hardcore fans don't really consume that much in-depth information about injury and recovery and strength training and all those things. So talking to you about that recovery process, it was so helpful to, to hear about, you know, you offered kind of several times like words of caution of, yes, she came back in this amount of time, but there's also like very serious medical science that says, you know, you have to take things one step at a time, et cetera, et cetera. You yeah. know, like there's so much that goes into this process. Yeah, there's unfortunately there's a lot of there's a lot of fads that get shown you know, that tend to be maybe a little bit more flashy or get more clicks or whatever. Um, but I mean, with Emily's situation, and as we talked about in the article, I mean, she worked her butt off and, and had a really, really, really good team around her. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of science saying like, you really got to have all your ducks in a row if you're going to do it this way. And even when you do it that way, you know, there's still science saying, you know, should you wait a little bit longer? Yes. She was, you know, she was a senior. She checked all the boxes on this stuff. She knows the risks and stuff. So um, yeah, I mean, that's that's something everyone, it was a good story because it's something everyone can benefit from because of the amount of hard work she had to put into it. And that's really over or underestimated, I should say, uh, during this process. And then uh, so much of the, the, the research and good just objective science that's behind things, but it's obviously a balance of both going mm-hmm. through that process. So, yeah, unfortunately, the boring sciencey stuff doesn't make for good stories a lot of the time. But, <laughs> but anyway, so it was a it was a good article, and it was a it was good to see Emily be able to to um, end her career on a really positive note. Right. Well, and I think the thing that was interesting to learn more about is um, like kind of the the more like maybe an inch down into like injury and recovery and all of that stuff is kind of just blindly following the timeline, you know, like just saying yeah. like at six months, you do this, nine months, you do this, mm-hmm. a year, you do this. Yep. And so, you know, one thing you talked about is, you know, the data does show that the injury risks go down, you know, the longer you get out because there's more time for the muscles to build back. There's more, mm-hmm. you know, theoretically, there's more time for you to gain that strength and reduce that risk. And so it's, it's to me, it's sort of funny how that lines up, like the timeline reducing risk in some ways frustratingly lines up with the oversimplified, like, 
yeah, nine months you do this, six months you do this. Yeah. Sort of like the oversimplified, unsophisticated thing. And I think that's where some of the mix-up happens. It's like right. the good data shows you that slowing things down can be good. Right. But it doesn't mean you just blindly follow a timeline of right. X, Y, Z. Right. I mean, when you have athletes come in, how do you get them to kind of grapple with that? Like, yes, Adrian Peterson came back after X number of months. And he was, he X was only of nine months, though. I mean, he was nine months. Everyone, everyone thinks Adrian Peterson was four months. He was nine months because he had surgery on New Year's Eve. And his first game back was in September because he missed all his, his – they didn't even play him in preseason. But, like, the further – it's kind of one of those things, like, you know, the, the, the older I grows. get, the better I was as an athlete, you know, kind of like as you get further away from that oh my time God. Came yeah. back after six weeks. Right, Julie, that's what you, yeah. But no, so how exactly? I mean, how do you get them back to if they're, you know, if it's like a teenager, even like a young college athlete, how do you get them to realize kind of, you know, what happened to their cousin 12 years ago is, <laughs> not, is not what happens now? I mean, how do, right. you, how do you get those young athletes to realize, and even parents, I mean, like if kids and parents are coming in and you're the one doing the rehab, you know, what's that like to, to get them to realize the sophisticated nature of this? But also a lot of it is just like effort, commitment, mm-hmm. um, you know, like mindset. Yep. So some of it's that science and then some of it is just like it's grit, it's effort, it's commitment. Mm-hmm. But how do you get them to walk away from I heard this thing this one time. That must be how <laughs> it works. Well, and that's maybe where my brutal honesty comes <laughs> comes by sometime. Um yeah, it's it's tough. First of all, everyone is different. There are going to be some people that are like that turn this into a competitive event, and they're like, "Well, if the science says nine months, I'm coming back at four and a half." You know, so there's that. Or you get the the parents that are that way, like, You're, "My kid is going to beat this timeline." Um, or you get the you'll get the opposite too, where they are scared to death of the whole thing. And unfortunately, a lot of these these injuries are non-contact, so it's not like someone went like you know flying into their leg. It's usually they planted or they landed a jump maybe somebody's by them, but it's like, wow, like it was just something that was really seemingly innocent. And now all of a sudden I got this big injury. So then sometimes they need more of a kick in the pants or they're looking for somebody to get the confidence from. Right. Um, part of the frustration and why I ventured out on my own, I didn't want to see, I didn't think I could do a good enough job seeing like 15 to 20 patients a day and it's just like an assembly line right because you can't have those conversations so sometimes you need an hour and a half with a with a with a with not just the patient but potentially the parents too of saying like you know this is the process these are the this is the you know this is the curriculum these are the thing what you know what questions do you have and they might have a mile of questions and just being able to sit down and build a rapport and talk with them and have some extra time Mm -hmm. is going to be all you know It'll it's going to be more off. meaningful than right. any other thing you could do, any equipment you could have or anything else right. like that. Right, because then that trust is kind of there, right. that foundation is there. So, and that's that's really the way I operate in here is be able to have time and also that there, I don't have a bunch of aides. You know, I do have a, a small staff, <laughs> but it's not like you're seeing a, P, a, you know, a PT aide here or an assistant there and then, you know, whatever. So that's the biggest thing is you right. have to like get on. Like every, every class they're taking is the professor. Like it's they're seeing you. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> so, you know, it's the – what I a lot of times what I'll say, um, I'll equate it to a – I'll say they're taking a road trip across the country. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're going to start in San Diego. We're going to get you to New York. Okay. That's not – and we're going to drive. We're not, taking a, we're not taking a plane. This is – we're going to drive – this is going to be a journey. So this isn't going to be quick. So set the expectations. And then I tell them, you know, there's going to be times 
you know, where it's going to be smooth and we're going to be able to cover a lot of ground. And then there's going to be other times where we're going to have to detour because the road was blocked and we didn't know. You know, so it's an analogy they understand. Um, unfortunately, so many of the athletes are 16, 17 years old. They, the driving analogy resonates with them. Um, <laughs> but it's so true. I haven't been able to find a better way to kind of tell the story of what the journey is, of what coming back from it. So, um, and, you know, I'll tell them that there's, there's going to be certain checkpoints. We're going to see. We think it's going to take this long. Um, but we're going to have certain checkpoints along the way mm -hmm. to make sure we're making progress and we're, we're on the map and we're making the, you know, we're, mm -hmm. where, we, where we think we are, um, and, and to be patient with it. But there are a lot of people that, I mean, it's a grind, and I don't yeah. think people understand or appreciate how big of a grind it is because these, these surgeries are coming, becoming so prevalent. They're certainly not going down. They're, they're still going up. Mm -hmm. um, and people hear about it all the time, and they hear about people coming back from it all the time, which, which is obviously good. But um, so I, th I think they take for granted the amount of time that's involved with it. The other thing, too, is they, um, you don't want to get back to the level of play that you were at. You want to be better because there is something about a lot of times, not all the time, but there was something about, a lot, especially with these non-contact injuries, there's something about the way they were mm -hmm. that made them susceptible to the injury. Right. And not, not all those things are controllable, nor do we know what they all are yet. Mm -hmm. But the things we do know, you know, can we take more time to make sure they get back so they're better than what they were? So right. that, and my goal, uh, and, uh, you know, one of my big motivations for branching off and doing this was let's cut the second injuries from happening because so many of them happen. Right. And then can we find a way to quit this, where quit you this come, injury from happening? Where you come back from surgery, you recover, you go out and play, and yep. then it happens again. Yeah, or it happens the other leg, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, so that's like 20 to 30% of the time. Right. Yeah, so that's I, I, a good one in four, unfortunately. Right. Those are the real things. So, and that's the other part. So along with telling, you know, telling the story and, and let, you know, put, setting down the expectations, um, data, <laughs> you know, can, uh, you know, letting them know what the research says on the time frame mm -hmm. um, and letting them know what the real risks are. And, and, you know, I had an athlete that came in last week and had on a second injury and and uh you know met met with met with them and um you know they there was some questions whether or not you know uh i had done the rehab on the first injury but there were some questions about you know is it should i go back to where i rehabbed or should i rehab with you and i told them i'm like you know what the the most important i go first of all my re-injury rate isn't zero it's really low. It's really low, but it's not zero. So I can't guarantee that. Uh, and I said, you know, the most important thing is that you have a belief in the plan and you have a, you know, you have a belief in what you're doing and the people you're working with. Um, and obviously, you know, that, that's the other stuff is important too, the curriculum and all that sort of stuff. But if you don't have those first two things and forget it because it's, it is such a grind. Right. Um, well, and you won't be committed enough because you won't, you won't buy in enough. Like right. it, it'll domino from there yeah. where, you're kind of, maybe you skip a few times more, maybe you're not focused as right. much, you know, and like if your mindset isn't there because it's such a grind, you, yeah. you have to be in it or right. else everything will just be a little worse. Absolutely. You can have the greatest plan in the world, but if you don't have buy-in, right. and I, I always say this, you know, the best plan is one that's done. Right. So if you don't have the buy-in, then forget it because the plan's right. going to go out the window. So you got to establish that first. But I think obviously putting the research out there as far as like what is actually happening with re-injury rates is, is super important. Uh, you know, and then the biological healing. I mean, I've got 
I've got slides I can show them on what a graph looks like at three months versus six months versus a year. You know, right. and you can't, that's not fake. You know, that's right. that's what's going on. It's in just the what happens. Yeah. It's cells recover at a certain rate. Right. There's, there's a certain limit. Yeah. I mean, you can push the limit, but there's a certain limit. Yeah. Right? And I've had patients before where either the, it doesn't happen too often, but it, it does happen where where they're just sick of the rehab process and they just want to get back. Yeah. And, and, and you know that they aren't ready yet. Right. And they're like, well, I don't, you know, like, well, I don't see why I can't go back because my, my teammate or whoever came back, you know, right. went back at four months. I'm sprinting fine. Like I, right. I did the runs. Like. Right. So, you know, so that, or the parents are like, well, this is taking too long. We got to have a college right. scholarship. You know, we got to get right. back on the court for a scholarship. Scouts are going to be out. Right. What's, what's going to happen? And, and you know, so trying to trying to balance that and, and, you know, telling them, like, you know, you can do it right or you can do it again because that's usually the way it works. Right. So, there, I mean, there's a chance that everything's just fine, but statistics typically aren't working in your favor. Right. So are, And, are and you, I know and, it sucks now, but do you want to do four more weeks of this or do you want to come do seven more months of it exact, next summer? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because if you think it sucks now, it'll definitely suck right. then. <laughs> well, and that's the nice thing in here is that there's enough, there's enough athletes that – um, that are in here on a regular basis that are now through the rehab process and just training with us to train for Strength the sport training. and get like, ready. Like yep. getting fit, getting, yep. And yeah. they've been, they've, gra- they've graduated rehab. Um, you they, know, and they, I they you can say, Hey, I'll pull Jake in here. He'll tell you. Well, I know just him. having a conversation of, <laughs> and it, it's great because I can say, you know, like if there's an, the other day, I know there's an athlete that has a fear of re-injury, but there's another athlete right now I'm rehabbing that has a fear of just jumping up and onto a six inch box. Right. And I can ask that, I can ask the other athlete who has a, you know, a little bit of a fear of going back into, into uh, games. They'll be like, the box is fine. Don't worry well, about the box. Well, hey, can you tell, can you tell <laughs> so-and-so like, what, you know, what, what can you, so-and-so's uh, afraid of jumping up on that box. What's yeah. your best piece of advice for them? Yeah. So they can actually teach another athlete. Like it's okay right. to be a scared, but you know, so right. there's some mentorship that, that can go on in here. Right. That natural kind of rub off of those experiences. Right. And then some of those athletes that want to rush back of like, Hey, well you should maybe talk to so-and-so who's been right. through two of these, you know, and if they could redo it again, what would their advice be? Right. And even at that point, eventually an athlete's going to have to decide for themselves. So, right. um, well, so you, you try to try to inform them as much as possible. Well, and part of what you talked about in there and part of what you said of kind of like the two sides of your business are that recovery process, but then also that training process of yep. you're not necessarily coming back from an injury or maybe you're already back, right. but it's that proactive work to get in the shape to, you know, be able to perform at a high level. Yep. And one thing that I think um, we've had some, uh, I've seen you have some really kind of good comments about is the idea of specialization and especially about younger ages. So if, if parents are really early kind of feeling the pressure of, oh God, now people are getting scholarships in, in 10th and 9th grade. So we really probably need to get more, you know, just focus on soccer by the time they're in U12. And then, oh, maybe we need to do an elite, like really get into an elite club and really start doing reps. And like, you see that, I mean, in, in Mm -hmm. Minnesota, I've seen examples like that. I think you had a really appropriate (laughs) criticism of a piece I did a while back when it was about that recruiting process and about players really specializing young. Oh yeah. I mean, freshmen committing and right. And, but even, but even like before that, when it's that specialization, I mean, talk about kind of how things like that impacted the physical development side of like when you're really focusing in and really, um, cause I think one thing that I've seen is, you know, 
there's plenty of top-level athletes who make it to the top of their game who, when they were younger, played multiple sports. You know, mm-hmm. they weren't, like, just soccer players. By the time they were six, you know, mm-hmm. they were playing basketball and baseball and whatever. But talk about that. Do you deal with, do you deal with that even on the coaching side of, you know, how that specialization versus kind of generalization on the physical side. Talk a little bit about that. Cause I don't think people have a good idea about what the impacts of that kind of stuff is. I mean, I yeah. think they sort of do, it's like very personal to people or it's like, well, if you didn't make the team, you know, it yeah. becomes very like personal, but talk about that in more of like from your professional perspective of what does that mean to specialize too early or what are the risks when you do that kind of stuff? Right. Well, and I think people's, intentions with the specialization are good. I think they're just trying, you know, their son or daughter enjoys a sport. Um, they want to help them succeed. So I think the intentions are good. Right. But I think just having more perspective on how the whole thing plays out is always is always good. Um, Soccer is not an early specialization sport. Um, so it's a late specialization sport. Um, youth sport injuries are not going down. They're exploding. Um, and the specialization is obviously something that's exploding as well. So, uh, you know, both of those trends are going in the same direction and correlation doesn't always mean causation, but, um, you know, the, the, the wear and tear on a bot, well, there's a couple of things like as from an injury perspective, um, your, if you, back to a car analogy, <laughs> um, if you're driving your car to work for the, the same path every day, mm-hmm. so the same, the same right-hand turn, the same highway path, the same, same exit, the same, same exits, right. the same every, the same stopping, starting, whatever, and it's always that path, and you do that repetitively, you know, hundreds of times during a year, and then not only that, then you do that for you know, say someone's specializing at like six, seven years old. So right. say you're doing that for 10 years. Right. You're going to wear your car a certain way. Uh-huh. So you're going to learn how this to... This side of the tire will wear right. this side of the brake just... pad. Exactly. Right. Right. Yep. The same thing's happening with our bodies too. Mm-hmm. The body will, will accommodate to whatever, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, whatever is being asked upon it. Mm-hmm. Um, so just like a car, mm-hmm. um, you know, you'd bring it in to get the tires changed. But we aren't, we aren't doing that with our athletes. Mm-hmm. One of the greatest ways to do that is cross-training. Mm-hmm. So, play, you know, playing a different sport. So just from the injury, you know, you're, you're just running athletes into a rut, mm-hmm. and especially during growing years too. And then you got, right. you got things like going, people going through their growth spurt, and then, mm-hmm. you know, so the body's going to be more – certain parts of the body are going to be more susceptible to certain types of injuries. Tendons and, you know, tendons are going to take a big – a big uh, uh, um, Mm-hmm. big uh, amount of the stress so you know you always hear about 13 year old uh <clears throat> girls that have knee pain mm-hmm. you know jumpers knee or whatever because mm-hmm. they're going through these growth spurts and stuff and then you would tend to have these spikes in injury um yeah so the the specialization stuff you're not changing up the movement patterns you're just in, you're ingrained mm-hmm. into stuff from a performance standpoint you're not getting any different stimulus mm-hmm. so your body is not having to problem solve different problems mm-hmm. so you're just stuck into the one way of doing things um and we see it all the time. Like, it's really funny because asking athletes to do a, like a, a somersault or like a forward roll and they don't, they can't, they can't figure it out. <laughs> they, they can't figure it out because just physical literacy of how to move outside of what is always like known uh-huh. to them right now is such a different thing. Right. Um, they can get in a defensive stance. They can like, right. shoot a layup or they could kick, they can kick a PK. Yeah. 
but they can't do a yeah, somersault. Yeah, they can't, they can't throw, you know, like basic like human movement things. They just can't do it. So it's kind of funny because we've had, we've, we, in our, in some of our, our training stuff and our warmups, you know, we'll have, we'll have them do different animal movements yeah. just to see it. And they're just, people are just lost, you know, or we'll have them, we'll have them do different types of gymnastics or rolling type stuff mm-hmm. just to get their, just get some sort of different stimulus to their body. Um, uh, but it, as far as from a performance and or performance uh, standpoint as well, um, Christy Pierce, who was one of the center backs for the women's national team um, for the longest time and extremely successful, she was a basketball player. She mm-hmm. got recruited as a basketball player. Mm-hmm. Um, and then look at Ibrahimovic. Mm-hmm. He was he was a, a big time taekwondo. I don't know if he's big time, but he yeah. had a big background in taekwondo. Yeah. And I mean, you look at how he scores goals, the way he problem solves. Right. It looks like taekwondo. Uh-huh. So I was sitting in his, a his side volleys. Yeah, out of the air. like out of nowhere, <laughs> right? But then I mean, even look at somebody like Brent Coleman. Uh-huh. Um, and his sister, Cassie Coleman, yeah. who was someone that I coached for club, they were multi-sport athletes. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, when they're having to close space or having to figure out different ways, in, in their case, because mm-hmm. they're typically defending more mm-hmm. often, you know, they're trying to have to find different ways to not let an opponent get the ball or to mm-hmm. problem solve so an opponent can't get somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they both played basketball. Right. So they're, they have all these different experiences that they can draw upon to make them a better player. Right. So, um, and also from an injury standpoint, um, those players tend to get injured a lot less mm-hmm. too because, like I said, their bodies had a, resi- a resiliency right. that's been built like up. Like working different muscles groups yeah. doing different movements right. all that stuff yeah i always wanted to do a study on i have i have cousins that, i have a couple groups of cousins that grew up on farms <laughs> and they played they played sports you never once heard about an injury for right. any of them but i i really want to do i really want to do a study maybe maybe university of minnesota morris can help me with there this. you go yeah oh but yeah a study with kids there's plenty of farm kids yeah, playing farm, d3 farm, athletics well, but farm kids that are having to do chores yeah and then go play sport yeah but they're building i mean it doesn't have to be lifting weights it could you know whatever right. just physical something or another you know this building That's up great. robustness of the body right um i just wonder if the injury rates are lower that, that is their, interesting. Maybe their parents just tell them not to complain. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. Maybe they just rub some dirt on it. Right. Maybe, yeah, exactly. maybe none of them have cartilage in any of their yeah, knees. They're right. just like dealing with it. But an interesting thing, though, um, I was sitting in a conference. Uh, Dave Tenney, who's now the – he's in charge of all the performance uh, side of things down at – with the Orlando Magic, but he was with the Seattle Sounders. Mm-hmm. And he, he put on a conference. It's still actually um, – up and running today they're gonna have it uh or to this present day and they're gonna have they're gonna have it again this summer not through dave but the guy who's there now but they had he brought in the one of the guys that was in charge of the youth academy Mm -hmm. at iax and he said he's not he's not with them anymore but one of the things he said is they were talking about youth development was they took out 25 percent of their soccer Mm -hmm. and then at at the academy um with their like 12s 13s and younger and they put uh, gymnastics in with it, uh, um, track and field events, yep. um, and I want to say some sort of martial arts. Mm-hmm. And they saw their injury rates go way down, and their performance went way up. Oh, yeah. Just because of the whole problem-solving and resilience, that right. resiliency and everything. And these are kids so, who are, like, living soccer. Like, right. So if they, if they weren't doing that, it would be like it didn't soccer st- year-round from the time they're, like, eight right. and until... Right, and it didn't stunt their growth obviously. Right. So, but then the other argument you'll always get is like, well, what about all these kids who are playing nonstop down in Brazil, yeah. you know, on the beaches? But that's, 
that's free. A lot of it's free play. Uh-huh. So it's auto. They can auto regulate. Like they, if they are tired, they can like they can take a break. They don't have a, right. they don't have a coach telling them like. It's not all twelve kids running the same reps, right. no and matter I, how I, tired or yeah. And a coach yelling at them to like not slack off because they're tired. Right. So yeah, they're getting extra touches, and it's a lot of free play stuff, which is awesome in itself. Right. Um. So I don't, you know, I don't think that argument necessarily holds up either. Right, because so. it's a different environment. It's not the same like pressures yeah. on the body. Because it's not. It's definitely not the same like repetition either. Right. Like no person when they play three on three basketball is like, well, let me like run this play. Like, right. Let me always run to the corner. Yeah. Um, well, and you, you talk, uh, I think a lot of the kind of that specialization part ends up being tied a lot to the recruitment part. Cause I think recruitment oh, it's a biz- at the yeah, top levels is happening earlier. And yeah. like the, um, even for me, the first few times you talk to, um, players, it's sort of like just even, even the coaches now who are maybe in their thirties, when they talk about when they were recruited, it's mm-hmm. just an entirely different world. Yeah. Or even like recent graduates if you now talk to like a freshman in high school like the worlds are completely different like it's already gotten insane yeah i've just noticed like in the last even like three to four years the amount of the amount of high like high level um freshmen that are getting pressured to commit Mm -hmm. you know in their freshman year if not like before their freshman year as like like, 15 year olds yeah yeah or 14 and 15 yeah right so well and i mean talk a little bit about like even deciding something to say nothing of like how mentally ready, you know, a teenager of that age is ready to like make a life choice, but even like physically talk about even like analyzing an athlete at 14, like what that means compared to by the time they're on campus, they're 18, 19, 20. Right. I mean, talk about comparing that performance from one to the other of like, what can you even predict or what can you get out of a 14, watching a 14 year old play compared to what you're going to get out of like a 22 year old, you know, like adult human person. Right. Well, and I don't know, as a college, college, I don't do any recruiting at St. Thomas, but (laughs) I mean, as a college coach, I don't want the kid who's peaking as a 14 or 15 year old. I want Mm -hmm. the kid, I want the kid who's maybe like a hard worker and <laughs> Cassie Coleman was a perfect example actually when 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 I started first helping coach her as a freshman um hard worker mm-hmm. um amazing attitude mm-hmm. uh super coachable good soccer player mm-hmm. not the best soccer player on the team right but she had a work ethic that was off the off the charts mm-hmm. um and she played multiple like she was a very good a very good basketball player as well Mm -hmm. um she didn't start like she didn't make her back when odp was more Mm -hmm. of a thing than it is now i mean she didn't make a region team till she was 17 18 right and then she would you know and then she peaked i wouldn't even say she peaked in college she did really well in college and was still peaking i still i wish she was playing right if you hear this i want you playing (laughs) Um, I, I, w- I wish there was an opportunity for her to play here in Minnesota, but right. um, but you want you want a player who's going to peak into college. You don't want those ones that are peaking so early. So right. uh, that even baffles me. I, I get it's a business. I, I, I certainly understand that coaches are making a, a livelihood um, off of winning. Right, um, and, and, and they need to get the best player. Like if you can get a good player, you have to get them because it's depending on it. Right, or whatever, but, but how many of those athletes that are really the top recruits when they're 14 are then – panning out you know right so and there will be some for sure yeah but then also the other thing is the transfer rate for for uh the transfer rate for the for 
women's soccer is is I don't think it's the highest in women's sports, but it's up there. It's definitely up there. Right. So that so many, and I don't think that's a coincidence that the the commitment rates are becoming so, so, so much younger. Right. And that that goes on both sides. Like you, if you get if you're a college athlete and they peak too early and they get complacent, then you know three years later when they actually get at your school, then right. it's not the kid that you recruited. You know, um, and then on the on the flip side, the 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 player, um, you know, college can open up so many opportunities, such a great experience, and then they're what are they basing their decision on because yeah. they got rushed into the process, yeah. you know? Right. So and what are they basing it off of? Right. And that's that's the other thing too is I'll get I'll get parents that will ask, well, well, what should we do? What should we do? What should we do? Yeah. Well, okay, what it like. Like, how far away does your child want to be from home? You know, <laughs> let's start with that one first. You know, what kind of city do they want to be in? What do yeah. they want to major in? Yeah. Like, what do, what, do, what do they want to do when their soccer career is over? Let's get those things out of the way first before yeah. jumping at, because, you know. Well, because there's programs everywhere. Right. Like, at Virginia won the Final Four, so now I want to go to the University of Virginia because it looks like a really cool school. You know, like, yeah. it's a big deal. So, um, right. But, well, and I think the layer. I think especially the layer in, in women's soccer, even at the D1 level, that people don't fully appreciate is, and, it, and it's maybe it's not the biggest deal, but I think also recruiting that young, one thing people don't realize about, about women's soccer across, like I was saying, is like even Division I programs are capped at 14 scholarships. Right. Like the, equi- the equivalent, so yep. 14 equivalent scholarships. Right. So if you have a roster of X number of players, Blah, blah, blah. So you get it. Like, it's spliced out. So the the really interesting thing I found is even talking to current players or recent graduates like Molly Fiedler, Emily Heslin, like April Bakken. So players who ended up being all-conference-level talents, who started forever, played forever, and asked them about, like, what was the difference in the offers you were getting? You know, like, yeah. were you getting, like, an 85% offer oh, and then right, someone right. else offered yeah. 90? But, but that amount in the transfer process is actually a lot bigger than people think. Like people, when they transfer, then end up taking a lot less than they would have been offered because they're like, oh, well, I took this one because I really like this school and I was offered, you know, a 90%, but then it didn't end up working. But if I'm transferring, like teams only ever have so much left. I mean, they strategize and they keep some around, but now I'm actually getting a half. (laughs) Like, you know, I'm taking a half. And then they got to make up for it in credits too. Right, and so I'm also, so I think people... When you're recruiting young, you're, like, making a gamble. Like, if Minnesota and Wisconsin – Minnesota and Wisconsin go after a lot of the same, like, upper Midwest girls and – or, you know, women on those teams. Yeah. And they're they're fighting against each other. And if Wisconsin's is like, oh, we'll actually give you 90, and it's like, oh, okay, well, we'll give you a full, like, full, full. But you're making that choice at a competitive point as freshmen. Right. And then it's like, oh, if we were choosing now, we'd probably give 80. But, like, the repercussions of that are real. You know, like yep. then, then all of a sudden it's a cycle of we're bidding early with less and less information earlier and earlier. Right. It's, it's a big gamble. Yeah. Well, in these schools, like there's only so many resources. It just ends up being more of, I think, a resource impact than you would think. Because then if a team, if you have these players who don't turn out to be as good, they're sitting on the roster and you're like, what are we doing? Like right. they're not happy because they're not playing. Right. And you're as a program, maybe not, you know, it's like the layers of it get really frustrating there's, the earlier you get. Right. And I think there's so much stress on both sides because of the whole, <laughs> because of the whole thing. I, I think the, the early decision, the early commitment, uh, benefits mainly the coach. Right. Because then they got people locked down. Right. And I don't know why it is, but in, in soccer, women's soccer, um, Commitment still means something. Yeah. Because 
you know. In other sports, it flips all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's out the window, right? Right. And I don't know why that still is in, in women's soccer, but it is. Mm-hmm. And I, you know. The, and play, can, the players have, be, players have maybe, maybe there's less ego. Maybe it's not the same, like, yeah. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's, people it's, being polite or whatever. Well, yeah, women instead of men, maybe. Like, yeah, like. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is. But right. but the um, – actually, I looked up the transfer rate for women – or the commitment rate or commitment age when yeah. people typically yeah. f- um, commit yeah. on uh, men's versus women's Division One soccer. And so it's a full, like, year and a half later for – but for I'm men. sure a lot of that has to do with just physical maturation, too. For men. Yeah. Well, and there's – and there's so few programs. I mean, comparatively, it's sort of nuts. Like the, I don't know what the actual number is, but you know, think of even like in the Big Ten, you know, like the U of M yeah. and so many other schools don't have programs. But yeah, maturation rate is probably a big one too. Yeah, but the the early the early uh, commitment is hugely to the benefit of the coach. Right. Which I understand they're trying to lock players down, and they're, you know, that's their livelihood. I get it. Yeah. Um. But then they're also going to get stuck with those players that didn't pan out, or the players that got injured. Right. And then, then there's stress. There's all this extra stress. The 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 small amount that benefit on the player side is if you had your heart set on a school, you knew that was where you, you were going to go to, and you can get in. Right. Yeah. So if you knew you wanted to go to, you right. know, Stanford or Harvard or whatever it was. Right. Um, and that was and you your dream school, in. and you can lock it in. Well, then that's it's like well, life, even then, right? it's not even locked in because you're not signing a piece of paper till later in the process anyway. Right. Till signing day. Right. Like your senior year or whatever. Right. So, I mean, the the other thing is so one sided to the coach too because the players are committing. They're quit. They're stopping the recruitment with all right. other schools. Right. And then if the coach leaves. Right. If the coach leaves, because coaches will, I mean, it it's a livelihood. Yeah. It's it's a profession. Fired or hired somewhere else or whatever. Yeah, whatever it is, uh, then all of a sudden the players have to either, you know, have to start all over again. Or right. if a coach decides, like, you know what, you've gotten injured too many times between the time you got right. you committed to, to before getting here. Right. That we're just going to cut you loose. Right. Or, you know, or, and drop, that happens. or drop your offer, like right. reduce your offer, whatever. Yeah, whatever it is. I mean, it happens. Right. You know, and I wouldn't say it happens, you know, all the time, but it's it's not unrealistic. Right. And it's, it's not against the rules. <laughs> right. Um, so, right. you know, so it's, it's very, it's, it's definitely in favor of the coach. Right. Um, it, players who are, uh, you know, I, I just think the best advice is, is, you know, really make sure you're doing your homework early on, on stuff. Right. Have a big basket. You know, you ha- it's, a, it's a two-way process. Co- coaches have a big basket of players that are looking at and eventually narrow it down. Right. Um, you know, uh, players should have a big basket as well. Right. You know, and then also narrow it. And hopefully if they both narrow down to the same point, then that's right. a great fit, you know. Right. But um, – and players need to be – I think a lot of times – um, at the youth level because it has become such a business and there's so much money invested. Mm-hmm. There's money invested by the parents, you know, and they want the, they want the you know, it to be able to, to be, pay, you know, to see something result from it with a scholarship. I get that. And college obviously is not cheap. Like, well, and I think, well, part of what you were, like, hinting at there too, I think another, another thing we've talked about before or I've seen, I thought during – a conversation uh, like a back and forth on Twitter you had a really kind of healthy unique perspective when people were talking about paying college athletes it comes up oh. a lot with 
men's basketball, men's football, because those are the most, I think, revenue driving. Yeah. I think the U of M and only a few other colleges in the entire country have a third revenue positive sport of men's hockey. Otherwise, like men's basketball, men's football are revenue driving. So the, yep. so the discussion around that, like Zion Williamson, you know, yeah. blows out his shoe and misses time and people are like, oh, he should have never went to college, all right. this stuff. But I think the... Isn't he going back for his sophomore year now? Uh, I thought I saw that. Uh, Trey Jones is. Minnesota yeah, I saw that angle. too. Oh, uh, I don't know, but I, Zion couldn't. He's going to get his billion-dollar shoe deal, whatever's going to happen. But I think the layer that I found really interesting is if you take that college athlete question of they're giving so much, what are they getting? But if you apply that type of dynamic and independently look at it for, like, women's soccer, for mm -hmm. instance – if you talk to enough women who have had to go through the college process and then try to play professionally, for instance, because like the professional payoff is what people are talking about for those other sports of like they could be making $2 million oh, a year right. instead they're playing college. Right. And women's soccer, even if you're at a public institution and let's say you get a full scholarship to the University of Minnesota and let's say the full cost of attendance is like, let's round up and call it 20 grand, you know, mm -hmm. like the full cost. The number of women in the world who make 20 grand a year to play professional soccer is like not very high. You no. can it's it's much fewer than the amount of Division One women soccer players. Right. But so I think we, I've joked with some of the U of M players who have gone pro, like the difference in value of you know you're getting a few hundred bucks if you're a professional women's soccer player, unless you're the best of the best mm -hmm. of the best. Um, so I just think that payoff is actually kind of different. And I thought when you called out just a blanket statement of like what athletes are getting out of college. Yeah. I appreciated you calling that out. Cause I think in general, I think the idea of paying athletes is kind of generally accepted. I generally accept it. Yeah. Like it, it feels right. But then in this particular instance, you know, the gap between college value and pro value, like yeah. air quotes around both is so different for each sport. Like I don't think yeah. people carry the argument long enough because I think different sports experience it very differently. Oh, for sure. I uh, I think the bigger thing with the Zion Williams thing was uh, was should he even be in college to begin with? Right. And that was a requirement by the NBA. Right. It's not but, the NCAA. Yeah. Right. But, but like, as far as like paying, <laughs> and then there's the other issue of like, okay, the NCAA is making just tons of money. Right. Off of uh, off of NCAA athletes. Um, and then they should be getting something in return. Mm -hmm. So they, that's where I have an issue because if you can walk away, I mean, t take a non-athlete, right? Take a non-athlete that's maybe good. Just take a non-athlete. They got to pay a full cost of tuition. Yeah. You know? Um, and then you take an athlete and I know like I get my, I get my, my whole education paid for mm -hmm. along with, a master's degree paid for actually too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, in, your I, fifth, in your fifth year. Yeah. yeah and then yeah. I got all this free gear. I got all these free meals. I got all this free travel. I got uh, free medical attention. I got tutoring. I got books. Um, you know, and there's a, there's a lot of other things that college athletes get. That's, it's not like, it's not like athletes are getting nothing. And especially when you're providing education for somebody like mm -hmm. that's, I don't know if there's a value you can even put on that beside, uh, uh, you know, even beyond the, right. the actual tuition cost. So 
I mean, for like Zion, he's if he's a poor example, but he's walking away from with a Duke University. Like he 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 got. I don't I don't know what his academics were, but was he able to get into Duke anyway? Because he got into a school that's really tough to get into. Right. You know, and then he right. potentially, if he wants to, I just found out. I learned today that Duke doesn't offer online courses. Which was I know, right? But um, uh, none. Yeah, so, so he's gonna. So, it's because they're so classy. Julie. They're so <laughs> highbrow. Steph, might, might be. Steph and Allie, we're, I'm teasing Dukies directly. Right oh, that's, that's where we're going direct. with that. I yeah. didn't say I kind of like Dukies. <laughs> I snuck, in, Cam- I sn- I snuck right. in Cameron once just to say I was in there. It's much smaller in person. Right. Yeah, it looks so big on That's TV. what makes it so loud and intense and yeah. amazing, probably. Or probably. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the like, so for you're getting a Duke education. Yeah. You know, and, and people, you know, what's the price of that? And mm-hmm. then he wasn't able, you know, if, if he wasn't able to get in there anyway. Maybe he was. But, right. Um, so he's walking away with a a lot of stuff so it's not like it's not like he's you're an athlete's getting nothing right so um and then they say well well you can't you can't work a job either right well I worked a job all the way through I got up at you know I I, I worked a job <laughs> all the way through college so you can do that right so I don't know well, I don't buy that argument I get the whole thing of they feel like they're being exploited and the NCAA is making all this money but the NCAA just a, some balance on the whole thing the NCAA also pays like so for St. Thomas, we got, we made the NCAA tournament. Our travel was paid for right. um, during the tournament, right. and they're not making. A, believe me, they are not making a cent off of us. Right. You know, we don't charge admission at our games. Like, and even right. if they did, they still wouldn't be making money off of us. Right. So they're funding a whole, and they're funding. They're not just funding St. Thomas women's soccer. They're also funding tennis and the. Right. You know, they're funding all these other right. athletes, so they are giving back. So it's not. Well, and I think even. I think what I try to remind people too is even if you take a even if you take a purely let's pay players argument, I think what people lose track of is if you're basing it on the revenue the sport creates, you know, if the yeah. argument is the NCAA is benefiting off of men's basketball and men's football players, which is yeah. generally what you'd right. be talking about, then are we just paying them? And then is it actually a net benefit for any of the other athletes right. in the entire U so even like look at the U of M like if if men's hockey generally generates revenue and then basketball and yeah. football generate revenue and then the Big Ten network money is coming in and that generates right. revenue, it's like okay, well if you're paying those players, are you paying the track and field athletes who get like a twelve percent scholarship? Yeah, and, you, the, and the track you, and field athletes are still in the gym at six a.m. Right, and like still you, have to do all the like, same. Like, stuff, do they you get know? paid the same? Is it different? Or even, or even, um, you know, like the the non-revenue sports like see a subsidy from that amount so i think i think what i generally just try to remind people of is it's not as simple as you think because only those two sports are generating revenue but athletic departments are huge i mean i always use and most athletic departments aren't making money at the end of the day well and i always use self-sufficient right well and i always use like track and field and cross country as the example because it's just like dozens of runners and throwers and whatever yeah, and, all, and yeah and yeah. all and they're all getting like six percent scholarships or like no scholarship if or 12 percent yeah. or whatever and but, so what, but wasn't that the point of the ncaa to begin with <laughs> isn't that college athletics right. it was meant to be amateur right we've just gotten away from that right so that's where i don't i, I get the whole thing it's it's become such a big business so right the, so people want to don't want exploit exploitation all that but the, i mean there is if there wasn't Right. I don't know. People are benefiting from it, so it is, <laughs> is my bigger thing. But. Well, we, t- we officially talked about paying NCAA players, so now we can get, like, aggregated and yelled at 
uh, by other people. So yeah, we so officially covered that topic. Make sure you get, throw out my Twitter handle. Speaking, so handle well, those. speaking of Twitter, <laughs> what a great segue, Julie. So we did get four questions online when you threw this out, so we should yep. be able to hit them. Yep. Coach Megan, what things can coaches implement or resources should coaches seek out in addition to, it says FIFA 11 plus, for strength injury prevention if those teams don't have access to their own trainers and weight room facilities. So what yeah. are some strategies coaches can use if they don't have, you know, dedicated staff or space? Yeah. What are some things just a standard soccer coach can utilize? Um, well, a couple of things. So on player well-being, um, one of the cheapest, easiest things, um, really get a good read and trust your players on how they're feeling on a given day. So if, if they are – if they are coming to you and they feel they they just appear more irritable than 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 off more or than typical, they you know they just look run they generally look run down. If your gut instinct is like something's a little bit off with them today, mm-hmm. like value that as input mm-hmm. that they're not just being lazy on a given right. day. They're not just being like teen moody teenagers. Uh, right, right. And a lot of times that like if if physical if they're being overworked physically and they need more recovery. Um, a lot of times you'll, and obviously see how that lines up with your, with your schedule as well Mm -hmm. too. Um, but you know, and what you've been doing in practice, but you know, if it just seems like they're down, like take that, take that as honest feedback Mm -hmm. and adjust things accordingly. Mm -hmm. Cause a lot of times player mood will go with how they're feeling physically. So you you can monitor, just kind of self monitor that way. Mm -hmm. Another little kind of, uh, trick to, to use too, that's low tech is just ask, you know, uh, when you, when you run a session on a day, Give it a rating from zero to ten. Zero, super easy. Ten, super hard. Like ask a player to well, tell you. Well, rate it yourself after you oh, ran, okay. wrote down the training session. Like, oh yeah, the, today is going to be a seven. Uh-huh. And then see if that came, or maybe today is going to be a three. So you think it's going to be a lighter session. And then at the end of the training session, ask a couple of players get feedback and see if they also thought it was a three. How did it come come across right. to them? So that what you're doing isn't like right. off. How um, are my built-in expectations? Yeah. yeah. So that's an easy one just to kind of get some feedback of where they're at so that you're working together. Um, kind of build it into your regular process. Yeah. So it becomes a habit for you. Yeah. And it could be as simple as, you know, like Google sheets or a lot of people use team snap or stuff. I don't know if you can do quite, you can send out messages and stuff, but you know, so it's, that's easy that way. But for on the strength side of stuff outside of FIFA 11 plus and that sort of stuff, um, you know, like seek out somebody who's a a professional in the field, as far as a strength training, um, just to sit down and have a conversation of, of what are, we have zero resources, what are things we could do, um, you know, because there are body weight things you right. can do. Um, it doesn't have, I mean, there is so much, there's so much simple, so many simple things that you can do. It doesn't have to be complex. It just can be simple and it doesn't have to be time consuming. Right. Um, you know, but there are, there are a lot of things you can just do with body weight. But right. I, I would say the biggest thing is just kind of player monitoring and then, um, and then seek somebody out just on body weight. Well, and stuff. even, even I think, like that advice point I think is so important because I think even what teams are probably really inconsistent about is like good warm up, good cool down, even without the strength element, like even the, how do we get warm? How do we get loose? How do we cool down? Yeah. Like those elements, I think at least what I've seen and we've like seen some kind of half joking exchanges on Twitter where it's like, what are we even doing to warm up? You know, like yeah. even the idea, I think that stuff is the same type of advice they could get from 
just like chatting, like what are some things to be aware about? Yeah, well, and like on the stream, like she's obviously got it with the FIFA 11 Plus. It's a super easy resource, and it doesn't have. I mean, it's not just the FIFA. And what's 11 that Plus. for people who haven't used that before? Uh, FIFA came out with a warm up uh, that was really focused at injury prevention, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's it's basically 11 exercises. There's been different variations of it. It's um, and it's basically 11 exercises that mm-hmm. or activities that that. Um, have different progressions within it, but that kind of hit the key things that people should be doing in their warm up. So, um, but the research, they've done a ton of research on it and the research coming back on it is just incredible as far as just lowering injuries in general with soccer players, but Mm -hmm. it's, it has a 50% reduction in ACL injuries across or 50% reduction in female ACL injuries and 67% reduction of, uh, ACLs, uh, in, or, Ah, let me get my yeah. my stats right here. Fifty percent on the female side, sixty-seven percent reduction overall. I wow. believe might have to double check that yeah. one. But it's a huge, it's a huge, huge, wow. huge, huge reduction of injuries. Um, but the thing with the strength training is just getting muscle back to the car analogy of driving it the same way with the strength training. Can, yeah. If you can't if you can't cross train, can you get the strength training in where they're having to use other muscles than the ones that they're using all the time? So right. Kind of keeping that car in check. Well, in this one, so this next one has a few questions in there, but part of it, I think, relates to what we just talked about. So I'll pull out the parts that didn't really have to do with that. So the the two broader pieces are, what do the best coaches of women's teams do differently, and do women and men need to be coached differently? Um, this has come up before, but almost from a flipped angle of, like, good coaching should be good coaching. Why do we need, you know, women explicitly to be coaching girls, that kind of stuff. But yeah. this seems kind of adjacent to that. So the, like, what do best coaches of women seems to do differently, in your opinion? And then kind of do women and men need to be coached differently? And you've obviously worked with, I mean, you work with athletes across the spectrum. Yeah. So what do you think about that in terms of uh, how you work with athletes? What's the first one? What do women? Yeah, coaches? what do the best coaches of women seems oh, to do different? I, I think it's what, I mean, I just look at that as what do the best coaches in general do, di- right. do different to be effective? I, I think they're good communicators is the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. With the um, players, with, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, the communication piece is huge, making sure that, that you're working together. Uh-huh. So, and then expectations are clear, plans are clear, um, you know, goals are clear. Um, mm-hmm. I think anytime you have, you have a situation where you're, things are not clear that's a lot of times when stress builds so I I think that's the biggest thing and with any athlete you know winning is on the list but it's way down the list you know fun fun you know (laughs) fun is one of the one of the is still even at higher levels is why people are playing um so I would say the communication piece uh and then setting the right environment Mm -hmm. would be the biggest thing right um the joke with the joke with the men's versus women's um is if you if you're down one zero at halftime, and you walk into a you walk into a men's locker room, and obviously this is generalization, and I'll maybe explain it a bit. But if you walk into a men's locker room, you're down one zero, and the coach says like, "Hey, you got to pick it up." Guys will typically think they're talking to the next guy next to them, but not to them. If you do that in a girls' <laughs> locker room, they'll, they'll all think coach is talking about me. Right. Like internalize it so much. Right. So females will t- tend to internalize things. Females. We typically don't have, I don't know if it's that we're, we're scared or, or just reluctant to be a, a little more self-confident on yeah. stuff. Um, like socialize that way. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So as far as that, you, you know, it still gets back to 
are you going to have male athletes that are going to internalize things a little bit more? Sure. Mm -hmm. Are you going to have female athletes that are, are not that, you know, are going to have loads of self-confidence and think you're never talking about them in that situation? Right. For sure. So at the end of the day, you just have to figure out how people tick. Right. Um, and I've been a big believer over the time that you get a lot more with positive reinforcement and, uh, instead of negative, right. Uh, or instead of punishment. So, um, I think if you can catch people doing things well and, and point that out and reinforce that, that's going to get you a heck of a lot further than, you know, telling people that they're going to do sprints and extra fitness because they got to pick it up. So, um, <laughs> right. I, I think that goes across, I think that's a people thing. I don't think that's a right. male or female thing. Right. But. I mean, it's really funny. I like consistently, kind of tell people to do this but if you go to a gopher soccer game just like watch the gopher staff and then watch the four bros from new jersey like any like anytime you come to a gopher game watch the away coaches or like purdue dad over on like the other side and watch the gopher staff just stylistically yeah like to obviously we you know we lose home games there's yeah. there's great teams who come in and they scream and they win like it happens all the time yeah but if you want to see stylistic differences yeah. between coaching staffs there's so many away teams who are literally screaming the entire time at yeah. their players and then Steph and the team is like sitting down and again there's plenty of times where we lose there's plenty of times yeah. where the other team wins yeah it's not magic but if you want to see the contrast watch the coaches well, a little bit it's a body language oh yeah you know because it's about you're sitting down in the body language at the you know that the players yeah you know are in control right um right I, there was a body there was a there was a a thing going around on Twitter from Gino Oriana, the the UConn women's coach, talking about body language. Uh -huh. We don't coach, you know, we don't coach attitude. You know, you make sure you, you know your body language better show that. I'm paraphrasing badly yeah. here, but you know that that you 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 know body language is so important. Yeah, I would love to see a study on body language of coaches. Oh Because there's yeah. one thing just with this being so close to the Final Four. When you looked at Texas Tech, um, Chris Beard, and you looked at Tony Bennett from Virginia. Very rarely did you see that the two coaches that were in the final, you very rarely did you see them looking extremely angry. Mm -hmm. They had different coaching styles, but you could, you could just tell the environment was an environment where those players really enjoyed it. And uh -huh. there was a lot of trust. Right. Then, then you see the, and I got, you know, people brought this too up on Twitter, of, you know, Tom Izzo, yeah. like where his players got to hold him back because he looks like he's going <laughs> to He's going like, apoplectic at Yeah, it just looks like he's going to just pop blood vessels in his head. He's losing his mind. Yeah, right. And that can't, that can't be fun to coach that way either where you're that stressed out over things. No. So. I mean, I, well, and I think most of us have probably had coaches. I've literally had coaches um, in other sports too where – like they'll sometimes reveal that they're yelling because they think they're supposed to yell. Like they think coaches are supposed well, to cultural. scream. Yeah. And then you and then you're like, oh wait, so there was no reason you you're yeah. cho like you're choosing. Right. Like you didn't even you didn't even get mad. You're choosing to pretend to be mad. Yeah. Because you think coaches are supposed to be mad. You know, right. like it's like, wow, I really don't trust you anymore. Right. But it's it gets so nuts. Well, yeah, the time is always very timely. That got some good Twitter play. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, it's just the optics. Of the whole thing. I don't oh, know yeah. Tom Izzo. I know his players love him. Oh, but, you team, know, just the optics like, of the whole thing. Wildly but. successful program. It still looked absurd on camera, so it was still fun to yeah. see. And then we have one from Don who asked, kind of threw it back to players too about, you know, players are not always rehabbing well after certain injuries. Maybe they they just straight up wait until they can walk, and then they wait until they can run, and they're kind of just like taking it passively. Um, 
Can you talk about, so I think she's kind of asking you, can you express the best way to recover so that people aren't necessarily just kind of passively waiting for it to, you know, like hurt less or like yeah. move easier? And I think she was referencing a, um, a ankle sprain and, and, yeah. and Don's a, a coach uh, that, that St. Thomas has actually played against and she's done a phenomenal like improvement of her program over the last couple of years since she's been here has been really really impressive um on the so players coming back from ankle sprains who seemed mm-hmm. it's it sounded like that it yeah. seems like they ice it they rest then they they can once they can walk then they can run and then they go right to running and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden they just tape it and they're back on the field and then they end up getting injured again right. how to kind of break that um that's where to kind of take this full circle back to the rehab process of not just going by a timeline on right. stuff but really having actual like good good criteria mm-hmm. for um for testing that ankle to see if it's if it's ready to go back mm-hmm. into a sporting situation so i mean there's a there's kind of a stepwise progression you can you can do mm-hmm. um but like in here when we've had you know if we've had our athletes that we aren't even rehabbing so the athletes that just train here um, we have certain jump tests on them on one leg mm-hmm. and there's been a number of times where somebody has sprained an ankle um, and we take them through a process on things, but we keep retesting them back on their jump scores to see where they're at. And mm-hmm. once they get up to a certain uh, percentage, not only left side to right side, but then mm-hmm. also what their pre, like their baseline, like improvement. what were their baseline measures when they were healthy, mm-hmm. you know, along with a lot of other things. But, you know, can we objectively measure? Then mm-hmm. then we've got a pretty good idea. They're, they're ready to go back. Mm-hmm. So I would just say on that one um, of, of uh, working with the sports medicine staff, and making sure that, uh, you know, what is the actual progression uh, and criteria to, to move through mm-hmm. from, from, you know, day of injury to how to, what, what is the measure, like what are the measures, and it usually isn't just one, mm-hmm. but what's the battery of tests that we put an athlete through to really test it, mm-hmm. and then also then reintroduce them back into training, probably not right into a competitive environment, mm-hmm. you know, don't put them right back into a game right off the bat, right. you know, can you test it in training right. and progressively build it up to see how they're responding, instead right. of just going from... You know, I sprained my ankle. I'm on crutches. Rest, it's probably walk, sometimes one of run, the worst game. things you can do. And then, boom, back. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, oh, I can walk. I can run. Okay, I'm playing. And then it okay, just keeps. Okay, now 90. It's yeah. Back to the whole you can, do, <laughs> you can do it right or you can do it again sort of thing. Right. So, well, yeah. ankles are brutal. I mean, I think people, because they're so common or it happens all the time, they associate it as being like a minor injury. Yeah. But, like, there's so many times now where if it's, like, a brutal sprain, you'd rather have broken something, like, because right. it's, like, a cleaner process. Right. It's not yep. – it's, like, a bone heals it's differently faster. than, like, yep. ligament, tissue, like, yep. all the other things yep. where, it like, ankles are just, just yeah. brutal. Well, I, in a sprained ankle, it is a ligament, you know. Right. It's so, like, yeah, and it's, a lot of times they are <laughs> completely torn. Oh. So, it's yeah, it's not like it's just a bruise. Or, I'm just thinking know, of, like, so. a incredibly swollen, like, purple – just, like – just terrible. Yeah. The so our last one is slightly more fun, but it's also pressure because now they're asking our expectations for the World Cup. So Rodrigo, who's a great great follower, he's a a premium soccer dad. Yeah. So he has a lot of content about his daughter's Blackhawks team. Okay. He's asking us for our World Cup expectations and commentary on the U.S. Women's National Team, and then the favorite favorite 99ers memory. And I will just my 99ers. I will half punt only to say. 
you should really I tweeted I retweeted this from my personal account and the Equal Time Soccer account. If you have not listened to Julie Foudy's new podcast, oh, you have I can to only imagine. you have to check it out. And I would say start with the episode with Mia Ham because they have there are some stories in there that are so outrageous and like so absurd and I almost can't even believe it made it into the final podcast. You have to listen. I was dying laughing <laughs> listening to this. But they talk about all the way back from like the 91 team, the 95 team, 99, 03. They talk about Olympic teams. They talk about what it was like when they were on the first ever youth national team. Like mm-hmm. there used to be only one. It was yeah. the U19s. Yeah. And they were 15 and 16 playing on it. Yeah. Like just like bonkers stories from like 80s and 90s, like <laughs> national team soccer for women. It was so crazy. So listen to that for sure. It's called laughter permitted i think i retweeted it before go find it that, that sounds it's so good it's like an hour podcast. of pure gold yeah. just like watch all of it but what jumps out to you julie about 99 or your expectations for this current for the world scene? cup yeah uh an unpopular opinion on the world cup <laughs> um i i'm more encouraged now that they put lloyd in the starting lineup the last game yeah and she, man, talk about like somebody. Like right away. Ta- and, and anyone who, who knows me from like two or three World Cups ago, like when, when Lloyd was early on, I couldn't, like I thought she was like, she had shooted over the goal. She turned the ball over like all the time. But obviously she's been amazing. Um, she's grown in her career and has been so instrumental. But now I was like, why is she not in the lineup? And then the last game, it got two goals in six minutes. Oh, God. And it was just – I mean, like, Belgium is what Belgium is. But that game was just nuts. I mean, they – she rises off. to the occasion. All well, the and time. it was like it was all headers. I mean, like five of the six goals were headers. Where like not all of our they were like floaty headers. Too. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like yeah. yeah like tossing it to the yeah, far. Like right. grazing it to the far yeah. post. But it was Carly Lloyd. I don't even think of her as you know Abby Wambach is like six one and just this giant towering yeah. beast. Yeah. Like Carly Lloyd, you almost think is someone who's like doing the service or like firing the shot. Yeah. I, at least I don't think of her as like someone who's finishing headers. But no, she no, just no. she looks like she's this giant in the box. Yeah. But it's it's probably kind of an older player figuring out how to use. She's got great positioning. Though. Use her use her body. Yeah. Like use her. I mean, she was in the box in position. Right. Place, almost right floating time. between that kind of like ten and nine, like kind of like a false nine, like kind of a ten who's drifting way up. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's just when it's on the line, she has a way to rise to the occasion. So, anyways, I was happy to see her back in. And I was happy to see Krieger in at at right back. Oh yeah, yep. So the fact that those two are in before that, I was like, they're not going to make the semifinals. I didn't yeah. think they would make the semifinals. Now I don't know. It, it's going to be interesting. And I, and mm-hmm. Krieger hasn't made the team yet, or no one's made the team. Right, yet, but right. The, the 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 roster hasn't been released yet or finalized, but. So with those two back in, we'll see. Um, France is going to be really tough to beat, I yep. think, you know, at mm-hmm. home. Yeah. Uh, England's doing a lot better. Mm-hmm. Germany's always in there. Yep. So Australia, even though we put up a ton, like yeah. a ton of goals, they put three on us. Like they, sh- they yeah. theoretically would be competitive. Right. Probably can't count like even like Canada out fully. They have like a few yeah. top performers. Yep. They got a, the the U.S. though the back line they got to make sure Oof. they got that sorted out. It was it, well they there was a really good comparison folks are making where it was like last World Cup we didn't know where our goals were coming from. I mean like we had Hope Solo in the back, great back line, like super compact, like tight defense. Mm-hmm. 
and now it's just like completely full opposite where it's like no we'll just win 5-3 just like put up some goals see what happens best defense is a good offense (laughs) yeah just go wild yeah but it does make it more of a wild card I think I mean it makes it less predictable yeah so I think flaming out is more of a possibility if you're relying on outscoring I mean if you're like a high scoring like shoot them out yeah so I mean Guess what? It'll make for an interesting summer. I, I mean, I always enjoy when it's a World Cup year and yeah. you can have games on all all afternoon and yeah. all summer and watch it. Well, and we have so. like a we have an interesting possible Minnesota connection where a new transfer from TS, uh, TCU, a new center back for the Gophers, is from Canada, but she plays for the Jamaican national team. What? And she has a shot at making the final roster. And so if she does. I will go. I will do watch parties for Jamaica. I will oh watch gosh. every game. So she has played in some tune-up games, not every tune-up game. Yeah. But there's a shot she makes the 23. So wow. Cache Lou, a three-year starter. At she's TCU. from she's from Canada. She's from Ontario. But, but she, she's but her you know she has the connection to Jamaica. So yep. she plays for the Jamaica national yep. team. And she's the new gopher coming in next year. So there's a shot that we will have a Minnesota connection that we oh will we will amp up like if she makes the roster yeah. we will like. Throw a freaking party for yeah. her because it'll be nuts. That's awesome. Um, so that's that's a great oh, angle. Be- best ninety best ninety nine memory um, was not actually of the nine. Well, yes, it was. Uh, it, it's of the ninety nines, but it's actually Tony Jachico. So my mm-hmm. best memory of that whole ninety nine group was a, a, a memory that was formed years later. Um, Tony DeChico, who has since passed away, one of the greatest, most humble, most humble people ever. Um, he was coaching a coaching course up here, uh, and I even can't even remember what year it was. But I was helping. I was helping him. I was on staff. It was a goalkeeping course, um, and it was up at McAllister. And after the course, or af- one evening after the course, we ended up going to Dixie's on Grand, yeah. and just to just to have a beer and and a bite to eat and. Uh, I think there was three of us plus Tony just sitting at a table and Tony's just telling stories about and not not telling stories in a way that it like like oh I can tell you all these stories but like look what I did but more like no, telling but, you fun stories right yeah just just like like he's you know like he's your uncle just <laughs> like telling you, you would desperately you hope that he would do after You're coaching the national team <laughs> yeah absolutely so then you start picking his brain and I can remember remember asking him like you know, like, well, what, how did you prep for the Rose Bowl? Like, how do you prep for a hundred thousand people? You know, and then he's talking about, you know, he's given the background of, you know, who he, who he could pick for the shootout versus not. And, you know, like all this in that way. I mean, it was just amazing, but he said one of the best stories, um, uh, from that whole experience was, uh, the quarterfinal game they played against Germany. I was actually at that game because I begged my parents, like we, we go, and it was at, I think it was at RFK or okay. one of the stadiums out in D.C. Yeah. But um, so I was at that game. They were playing Germany. There was a back pass from Chastain. Okay. Um, played it backwards. I think it was from Chastain. Played it backwards. Um, and then there was a whole mix-up with her and Scurry, and they mm-hmm. ended up getting scored on by Germany early on. They went down 1-0. And then um, – Tony said that Carla Overbeck at the time was a center back who apparently was known, and I don't know Carla, but was known to be very intense um, and normally would have potentially, like, bit somebody's head off for that. Um, he said that, that Carla Overbeck went over to Brandy and said, like, hey, we're going to need you later on. Right. Um, and so instead of when she could have just yelled at her, you right. know, said, hey, we're going to need you later on, so, you know, let's get going. This was on the way back to kick right. off. 
Well, they uh, Brandy ends up in the second half scoring the tying goal, and they go on to win it. Yeah. And, um, you know, his story of, like, you know what, the importance of, especially back to tie this all together, female athletes, mm-hmm. of, you know, there's going to be times when you're going to have to pick up a teammate. Mm-hmm. You know, because, and the best thing you can sometimes tell a teammate is, like, we need you. Right. And, uh, and that was – that to this day, that's, that, that story has always stuck in my head. But, but Tony just – if one of his books – or a, a book he, he helped write with uh, Colleen Hacker is called Catch Them Being Good. Mm-hmm. And it's all about, it's actually, Julie Foudy might actually talk about this. It was a, It's about how when Tony first, first took over the team, he was very hard on him. Uh-huh. And and then one, like, he could tell that there was kind of a rift with, with the team. And then he, he just kind of, the players came, a couple players came to him and said, like, hey, like, do you not like us or what are we doing wrong or that sort of thing. <laughs> right. He didn't know he was coming across that way. Uh-huh. So then he met with his staff and said, you know what, the next practice, we're only going to compliment them when they do something well. Right. And so you Reinforce what went yep, well. Yep, so you catch them when they're being good right. and only making the comments on that. Right. And, I mean, the rest is history. That's how his, co- I mean, his coaching philosophy with that team was essentially that at that point. Right. Was, was like, let's reinforce – um, right. And that book is phenomenal um, for anyone back to whoever, uh, I forget who it was, yeah, that, that asked about, yeah, so, or asked about coaching female oh, athletes. Yeah, yeah. That's an amazing one, but that's just coaching yeah. people in general. So. Well, and I think the, the thing, especially when you talk about like focusing on the positive, that could work at any age, but I especially think for like top quality athletes, they, you know when you mess up. Like, you, yeah. you know if a pass is bad, you know it's bad. because right. it, it, Everyone in the stadium like knew. You, yeah. yeah, or like when the shot is off or when you realize you should have given another pass because a player tells you. Right. Like, you know. I mean, like, you have a feeling in your gut when something is wrong. Yeah. So it's almost like the absence of positive can still tell someone when there's the negative. It's right. not like you're pretending nothing's wrong. Right. It's that what you choose to reinforce. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, so. Julie, this was awesome. We yeah. took – like an entire hour of your time. Uh, and you <laughs> well, I appreciate the opportunity. In your office. Well, and Julie, we'll put this in the in the um, the podcast description, but it's Julie underscore EIB. Yep. Us extremely long last name people have to find ways to, to abbreviate that. It takes up too that. many characters. It turns those. out there wasn't another Matt Pavratsky on Twitter. Can you believe it? Oh, there wow. Was, so I have Matt Pavratsky. But Julie, really appreciate it. We're here in your office. Loris. Yep, L-A-U-R-U-S. Is, yep. If anyone needs top quality training, recovery advice, come up here We're on County Road C. You can swing by Rosedale. We sound like a whatever. car dealership now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did buy my car at the Buick dealership right over here. Oh, so this go. is this is car dealership city. It's yeah. just you happen to sell physical strength and recovery. Yep. But Julie, really appreciate it. Thank Thanks you. Thanks so much.